Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrence. Concurrence is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrence is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Welcome to our podcast on private enforcement of antitrust claims. Uh, I'm Juri Klein, General Counsel for Deminor in the Netherlands, and we are broadcasting from our headquarters here in Brussels. Uh, Deminor is a litigation funder, and we fund all kinds of uh, litigation, including these private enforcement of antitrust claims. It's one of our core businesses. Um, we do that generally against no cure, no pay, no risk arrangements. Uh, although alternative arrangements are possible as well. I'm here today with two colleagues. On my right, uh, Giacomo, please uh, introduce yourself. Uh. Hi, Yuri. Thank you. Uh, as you anticipate, my name is Giacomo Lorenzo, and I'm working at Deminor as a senior legal counsel. Uh, before joining Deminor, I worked as a lawyer in an Italian international law firm, and I completed an LLM at University of Lausanne with a specialization in international business disputes. On my left, I have uh, Felix. Hello, my name is Felix. I am very happy to be here today and talk about antitrust actions in Germany. I'm general counsel for Germany, Austria and Switzerland. I'm with Deminor since 2016 and um, has been or was working as a lawyer before involved in all kinds of commercial disputes, including antitrust actions. Yeah, and it's not a coincidence I'm uh, sitting here uh, as a representative for the Netherlands and on my right, Italy, and on my left, Germany. Those are three jurisdictions where we have seen a lot of uh, price, private enforcement actions related to antitrust infringements. And what we want to do today is to zoom in on these three jurisdictions uh, to see what are uh, relevant differences or, or what are maybe uh, things that make these jurisdictions stand out as a jurisdiction for uh, those kinds of litigations. Um, things we, we, where we will look at is whether it's possible, for example, to claim damages uh, collectively. What is the role of funders and what are advantages to work with a funder in these jurisdictions? Um, what about adverse party costs, access to evidence, um, and various other topics? Um, but as a starter, I think it is good to have a look at what are the possibilities in these three jurisdictions when it comes to collectively claiming damages. Um, I will first start with you, Felix. If you look at Germany, um, what are the opportunities in Germany to, to claim damages? Can you do that collectively? And if so, how is that structured? It's, it's a bit complex um, in Germany currently. Um, there's no US-style opt-out class action mechanism. Instead, um, victims of a cartel have to opt into litigation. Today, the most used structure to do that is to bundle claims in a group action um, or to use the assignment of claims model. The bundling of claims in one group action is well established in Germany. Demonior has used it in Germany many times, um, but under certain conditions, it can be 
difficult to manage a group with hundreds or even thousands of plaintiffs. Therefore, clever lawyers came up with the assignment of claims model. Um, and in that case, victims of a cartel assign their claims to an SPV, which then serves as plaintiff in court. The advantage is evident. You don't have hundreds of plaintiffs, but just one plaintiff. But there are also some downsides to the structure, as for example, there's a potential conflict between the SPV and the claim holders or the claim holders with weaker or stronger claims. Um, the validity of the assignment model was long disputed, especially the lower courts in Germany considered that it violates the Legal Services Act and therefore the assignment is void and therefore the wrong plaintiff, the SPV, issued proceedings. Um, in its Lex Fox and Air Berlin decision, the Federal Court of Justice found that the assignment model was valid um, in, in line with the Legal Services Act. Um, the court found that any potential conflict um, of interest within the structure is offset by efficiency gains. Um, and most experts believe that the discussion about the validity of the assignment model would end there. Um, to probably everyone's surprise, the lower court of Stuttgart last year uh, rendered a decision um, and saying that the um, assignment model in that case would be invalid because it is based on or it is in the context of antitrust law, which is especially difficult. Um, we do not believe that this argument will hold before the Federal Court of Justice, but plaintiffs should be careful and assess the situation very, very precisely before choosing the assignment medal today in Germany. Yeah, so you have opt-in mechanisms available. SPV model is approved, but still challenged. The bundling of claims, having multiple named plaintiffs appearing in the proceedings, that's fully accepted and not an issue in Germany, right? That's it, exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. And um, when we look at Italy, uh, Giacomo, how are things uh, structured there? Can you do opt-in litigation, opt-outs, collective, individual? Yes, so generally speaking, uh, group actions are permitted under the Italian law. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, before we had this special legislation on the class action proceedings provided by Article 140 bis of uh, uh, the Consumer Code. But after, uh, in uh, 2019, uh, this special legislation has been amended by the class action reform. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, with the class action reform, the discipline of the class action has been moved from the consumer code to the Italian code of civil procedure. And uh, there are very innovative, uh, you know, new feature of the class action. Uh, probably the most important innovation is that right now the class action is available uh, also for uh, companies and for professionals. Uh, before was a procedural instrument available only for consumer and user. And of course, this, is, this has uh, an important impact, in my opinion, also on the uh, antitrust class action. Um, another innovation uh, is, as you correctly said, uh, uh, you know, uh, that we have uh, an opt-in system, uh, but uh, it is possible to join the class action not only after the uh, publication uh, of the order ruling on the admissibility of the class action, but also after the publication of the decision 
mm-hmm. ruling uh, on the you know on the case and the establishment of the liability of the respondent. Um, and lastly, I think that what is very interesting also from litigation funder perspective uh, is uh, the uh, reward fee, because the unsuccessful respondent uh, is uh, obliged to pay uh, um, you know reward fee to the representative of the class uh, and to the plaintiff's lawyer. And uh, this, uh, you know, this is calculated as a percentage of, uh, you know, the compensation due to the members of the class. Uh, uh, however, I have to say that uh, the new reform of the class action entered into force in 2021, mm-hmm. uh, and it is available only for the class action uh, for uh, a violation uh, occurred after 19 May 2021. So mm-hmm. it's still a new, you know, new tool. Uh, and probably is not the most common, uh, you know, way to start a group action. Uh, as you correctly sa- uh, said, for Germany, I think that in Italy is the same. The most common way is to, uh, you know, bundle uh, individual claim in one ordinary civil proceedings. But probably in the future it will change uh, and uh, the class action will be more used. Very interesting. So uh, some very interesting developments. And uh, for these uh, class actions, we will definitely have to see how these will pan out uh, in the Italian uh, context. Um, But indeed, so the bundling of claims, the old opt-in model is still the most used one due to the temporal uh, limitations of this uh, class action act. Yes. then moving to the Netherlands, is it possible to collectively claim damages? The answer is yes, definitely. Um, the Netherlands, uh, first of all, has the opt-in mechanism. Um, this is the bundling of claims, similar to Germany. Uh, so it's accumulation of claims with multiple plaintiffs appearing in one and the same proceedings. You can also make use of an SPV that is contractually mandated to act on behalf of the litigants. So such an SPV, for example, a foundation, files the claim on its own name, but for the benefit of the plaintiffs behind it that contractually mandated this SPV. Uh, But a very special feature uh, of the Netherlands is that we also have an opt-out mechanism for litigation. That is the Dutch WAMCA. Um, This makes it possible to file an opt-out claim for damages. So you have one foundation that acts on behalf of a class and um, basically, if you are a Dutch claimant, you are bound by what this foundation achieved through this litigation, unless you opt out. So it's basically the opposite model. Um, we have, however, not seen many uh, uh, antitrust follow-on claims uh, uh, under the WAMCA. And the reason for that is a bit similar to Italy. It's rather new. It was enacted in 1 January uh, 2020. Um, and yeah, there is also a temporal scope. It has to be about events after 2016. Um, so it's rather new and young, but uh, I think these opt-out actions in the Netherlands will uh, be tested and used uh, in the near future. Um, so it's, it's rather clear from, from these answers that when it comes to the structure of the claim, uh, there are similarities between Italy, Germany, uh, and the Netherlands when it comes to the opt-in model. And I think in all three jurisdictions, we're looking at uh, new possibilities and developments for the near future. Um, But it's certain that these still will have to be tested uh, and and we will have to see if they can really be efficient mechanisms for such actions. Um, That may be good because we already discussed a bit about opt-in litigation being tested. Uh, Let's have a look at important judgments and settlements or pending cases in these uh, respective jurisdictions. 
uh, Giacomo, Italy. What is uh, what is happening there? What has happened there that is relevant uh, in this in this field? Yes, I think that in Italy there are several important cases uh, when you look at the antitrust field. Uh, however, probably the most important case, uh, uh, also with respect to the private enforcement, uh, you know, is uh, the uh, corrugated cardboard cartel. We are currently working on this case and basically in uh, 2019 uh, the Italian Competition Authority uh, established uh, the existence of two anti-competitive agreements uh, between the main uh, uh, producer of corrugated sheet uh, and packaging uh, and uh, after the decision was appealed uh, before the administrative court by the members of the cartel uh, with an exception for the uh, leniency applicant uh, but uh, the, uh, the TAR uh, rejected uh, most of the appeals and now the proceedings is pending before the Consiglio di Stato that is the higher administrative court mm -hmm. and uh, it is interesting because uh, uh, in November we received the first decision from the Consiglio di Stato that confirmed the existence of the cartel okay. uh, so now all the victims of the cartel can you know uh, start the uh, uh, civil proceedings asking for the compensation uh, for the overcharge that has been applied and probably this is the most important uh, uh, cartel uh, actually uh, that uh, was found in Italy there are uh, other like the international TV rights cartel mm -hmm. uh, the seven culture is also you know an interesting case in Italy but I will say that the most important right now is the corrugated cargo cart Okay, very interesting. And that's being structured under the old or under the new regime? Uh... No, uh, as I said before, uh, there are no, uh, currently there are no class action pending uh, in Italy uh, yeah. with, re with regard to the antitrust uh, mm -hmm. matter. Uh, so I think that uh, the group action uh, are uh, structured as uh, ordinary proceedings yeah. with several plaintiffs. Okay. Uh, so, and I think that all are acting in this way and we are doing the that, same. Uh, the same. Yeah. Yes. Okay, thank you. And, and Felix, Germany, uh, uh, can you say something about important cases and settlements? Well, there have been several important decisions by the Federal Court of Justice, um, so the highest German civil court. Uh, those decisions have mostly been plaintiff-friendly. Um, examples are, for example, the, the trucks cartel, um, the uh, air freight cartel and the rail tracks cartel. Um, experts now believe that the, let's say, biggest challenges and biggest legal questions have been cleared up by the Federal Court of Justice. Um, one rather interesting recent development is that the Federal Court of Justice emphasized the role of judges to estimate damage damages um, so as to assess them freer without using a court-appointed expert. Um, the lower court of um, Dortmund followed this decision and estimated the damages in a private enforcement action. <coughs> if this will hold in appeal, we do not know today. Um, otherwise, a higher regional court of Celle also followed this decision and assessed or freely assessed damages. That's an interesting development. Uh, so um, things are becoming more concrete in Germany, uh, I would say, when it comes de to these kind of actions. Um, definitely. Um, it, was, uh, it was a black box for, for, for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. But this is especially this plaintiff-friendly judgments make Germany a very attractive jurisdiction now to enforce um, private um, private uh, damage claims against yeah. cartelists. 
Very interesting. Well, I see some parallels uh, with the Netherlands. Uh, we also have an air cargo uh, litigation uh, ongoing. Um, started in 2010, still pending. Um, elevator cartel, still pending case from 2010. And we've seen two important settlements uh, in the cartel area. It's the paraffin wax cartel and sodium chlorate, uh, both uh, uh, settled in the Netherlands. Um, and one very active ongoing case, that's the trucks uh, cartel. Uh, I think even in Italy, uh, 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 there's, there's litigation on that in Germany, the UK and in the Netherlands as well. Um, there are four waves of grouped actions in the Netherlands and we are involved in the first wave and the fourth wave uh, on behalf of a large amount of, uh, of clients. Important case, uh, groundbreaking in various aspects and we'll get to that a little bit later uh, when we will discuss uh, the general attitude uh, of the courts. Uh, in these jurisdictions. But before we get to that, um, important question on, on adverse uh, party costs. Uh, that's of course a relevant factor uh, when you start litigation. It can be in some jurisdictions very costly, in other jurisdictions still costly, but maybe less costly. Um, for the Netherlands, I can say that um, the adverse party risk is relatively low. Relatively, it can still be substantial because you generally litigate against various defendants. So not one, but maybe eight or 10, and even relatively small amounts can then still add up. Um, but compared to other jurisdictions in the Netherlands, it's, it's rather cheap, um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that, that will work in, in, in Italy, for example. Is the risk high in Italy for adverse parties or, uh, or generally uh, low or how would yes. you perceive it? So broadly speaking, in Italy, uh, the cost follow the outcome of the proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, so under Article 91 of the Italian Code of Civil Procedure, uh, at, with the final decision, uh, with the final judgment, the judge uh, uh, ordered the losing party to refund the legal cost uh, to the uh, counterparty. So the losing party will pay for the cost also of the counterparty. Mm -hmm. um, however, there are some cases in, in which the, or the judge can order the compensation of the costs. Uh, so when uh, both the parties have uh, partially lost, for example, mm -hmm. or where, when uh, the legal matter uh, was really complicated or was a new legal matter. So in this case, the judge can compensate the cost among the parties. Um, regarding the, you know, uh, how expensive are the legal costs in Italy, mm -hmm. uh, probably it's not the most expensive jurisdiction from this point of view, uh, but with regard to the private enforcement proceedings, we know that uh, you have a, a huge cost for the expert, yeah. because you need experts that are highly specialized in this particular field, and also the lawyer, you know, usually the lawyer that we as Temenor appoint are highly specialized in the uh, private enforcement, and so the cost can increase, of course. Yeah, uh, so that's mainly your own costs, of yes, course. Yes, my but own costs. Do, uh, do you pay the expert costs of the, yes, uh, the, of the other party as well if you would yes, lose the litigation? If you lose the litigation, of course, you have to pay, okay. as I said before, the cost yeah. of the counterparty. And uh, in this case, uh, the judge will uh, uh, rely on the uh, ministerial rates. So okay. that are set and uh, probably will be lower than, uh, than other jurisdictions, like for example in Germany, and also the taxes, uh, like Contributo Unificado for example, mm -hmm. is not very high, so the court fee are not very high yes. in Italy. So you would perceive it as moderate compared yes, to... Yes, moderate, yeah. I, I would say moderate cost, yes. Okay, and Germany, Felix? Uh, in Germany it, it works a bit like in Italy, we have the loser pays rule, so the losing party has to pay not only its own cost, but also um, the costs of the, the winner of the proceeding. Um, 
we but and yet we also have this transparency like in the like in Italy in contrast for example to the UK where we have transparency about the adverse party costs because there's a statutory regime um, that determines those costs um, the risk in Germany in private enforcement claims um, is even higher because usually you do not have just one defendant but several defendants or even if the plaintiff just issues proceedings against one of the cartelists um, it uh, this cartelist usually gives notice to the other cartelist because of the joint and several liability of the cartelist so the decision will be binding in the past um, a plaintiff for example which loses the case had to pay um, all um, of those joining parties or that was party cost of all of those joining parties which could sum up to a very high amount um, recently the German legislator saw this and um, changed the rules a bit so even if you face for example 10 defendants um, on the other side adverse party cost will be max one and a half to two times compared to just one defendant Okay, well, that sounds, uh, from a claim, uh, claimant perspective, reasonable. It's, of course, uh, if you start litigating against one defendant and you're suddenly confronted with them and uh, <clears throat> you see the risks increased uh, uh, massively, I think that is a, a positive uh, development. Uh, thanks, Felix. Um, we, of course, have seen uh, the implementation of the Damages Directive. And one important feature uh, of that directive is access to evidence. Um, <clears throat> from a claimant perspective, that is, of course, important. Burden of proof for various aspects of the case is still on the plaintiff. Um, in Italy, uh, Giacomo, uh, how is that arranged, uh, access to evidence? Uh, and when you look at the damages directive... Um, yes. Yes, okay. Uh, thank you for your question. So, um, generally speaking, we don't have uh, a procedural uh, tools such as US-style pretrial pre discovery mm -hmm. uh, that could be very important, but we don't have this type of uh, you know, procedural tool. Uh, however, during the proceedings, you have the possibility to uh, request for the disclosure of some documents uh, that uh, you know, the counterparty has or a third party has. Mm -hmm. uh, so the judge has the power to request the disclosure of this document. Um, and uh, this is part of also of the uh, damages uh, uh, decree, so that they implement the European mm -hmm. Directive. Um, and probably an interesting innovation is that there is the possibility uh, for the uh, court also to ask the discovery or the disclosure of the document uh, that are uh, in the file uh, of the proceedings before uh, the uh, competition authority. Yeah. Uh, so probably this is the most important development uh, uh, in Italy regarding yeah. the you know, disclosure of the evidence or the documents. Yeah, in the Netherlands situation is, is, is a bit the same actually. Uh, that was already the case before the implementation of the directive. In the Netherlands it's also possible to subpoena certain documents. cannot be a fishing expedition, so the documents have to be specific. Um, interests of the various parties are weighed and then the court takes a decision on that. Um, so that's quite identical. Um, for Germany, Felix, uh, uh, and, and by the way, there's no pre-trial discovery in the Netherlands, just mm. to be clear about that. Um, do you have that in Germany, uh, Felix? Indeed. So German law did not know any discovery regime before the transposition of the Carter Damage Directive. Um, but now the provision goes beyond the minimum standard 
set by the EU directive and allows for pre-trial discovery. So it is possible to only sue a cartelist um, to disclose certain kind of information without bringing a damage claim. The idea was this, that this will mechanism will, will facilitate pre-litigation settlements, um, but uh, this pre-trial discovery is applied very restrictively by German courts if they have no experience with, with the matter. Um, in one case, the lower regional court of Hannover um, ordered the defendant to produce the unredacted decision by the European Commission, um, but otherwise um, there have not been many positive court decisions yet. Well, it seems that Germany is uh, really making some uh, uh, movements uh, in, in, in the direction of, of plaintiffs. Uh, this is a very interesting development, so coming from basically no access to evidence, uh, now uh, something that is above the minimum harmonization, uh, very interesting and also very important for victims of cartels to be able to uh, get uh, the evidence that is uh, otherwise impossible to obtain because it's of course uh, in possession of the defendants. Um, that is an easy bridge actually uh, to our next question. Um, how would you perceive uh, the general attitude of the courts and maybe to combine this question with another question uh, how long does it take for proceedings to progress, for example, to mature to a settlement or a court decision? Would you consider that Germany is uh, fast or moderate or maybe a bit slow? Um, uh, what's your view on that, Felix? Um, maybe um, regarding your first question, um, it depends a bit what level of courts you look at. Mm -hmm. So um, the lower courts, I would say, are rather conservative while the cartel panel of the Federal Court of Justice is almost progressive and in favor of, of the plaintiffs. Um, with regards to timing, I think it's rather, uh, it's not definitely not the quickest, but also not the, um, the slowest jurisdictions. It will be somewhere in the middle. Um, a first instance proceeding generally lasts between three and five years in complex antitrust cases, but we have also seen some exceptions where the first instance proceeding took seven years um, or even longer. The second instance usually takes uh, two to four years, I would say, and then if the case is accepted to, um, to the third instance, it will take probably around three years. All of that obviously are, uh, there are exceptions, um, that's very generally speaking, but I think uh, most of the cartel cases in Germany get settled um, in first or second instance, so it will not usually not reach the third instance. Yeah, yeah, I can kind of confirm the same timelines uh, <clears throat> for the Netherlands. Um, I think Dutch courts are, are rather progressive uh, and pragmatic when it comes to uh, these kind of claims. Um, you can, for example, litigate in, in the Dutch language, in the English language. You can submit exhibits in those two languages, but also in German uh, and in French, uh, which is very helpful. Uh, for example, in the trucks litigation, uh, we have a lot of Belgian clients uh, with evidences in these languages, so that, that's very useful. Um, courts try to keep the pace uh, uh, moving forward uh, quickly, 
Um, they are well educated and trained uh, and have a lot of experience with these cases in the Netherlands. Um, so that's, that's very helpful for the Netherlands uh, when it comes to these kind of actions. Um, obviously, cartels are, for example, operating uh, in the dark. And usually they are only discovered uh, so and so many years after they occurred. And if you then as a plaintiff have to wait another 10 to 15 years to get your damages uh, back, that's of course uh, uh, not very uh, helpful. Um, Italy, uh, uh, Giacomo, I'm curious about Italy. Uh, we sometimes hear that Italy is slow um, when it comes to litigation. Um, but what's your view on, on, on these kind of cases? Yes, uh, basically the intention of the legislator was to increase uh, the degree of uh, specialization uh, before the court of first instance. So in Italy we are three uh, courts that uh, have jurisdiction in the antitrust matter. That is Naples, Rome and Milan and they are highly specialized. And in my opinion this of course has an impact also on the duration mm -hmm. because they are very efficient and uh, also on the quality of the judgment. Uh, so answering to your question, I think that uh, the approach probably is pragmatic, if I have to describe it, you know, it will be pragmatic. And regarding the duration, it depends on, mm, you know, case by case, because of course there are two main uh, aspects that can affect the duration of the proceedings, that is, uh, uh, you know, the first one is how burdensome is the discovery phase mm -hmm. and uh, if there is the need of the involvement uh, of an expert uh, uh, for the calculation of the damages. So of course this could affect the duration of the proceedings. Uh, generally speaking in Italy uh, the duration of, of uh, uh, you know, the proceedings before the uh, court of the first instance is three years mm -hmm. but probably due to the fact that as I said before uh, there are only three uh, courts that are uh, that have jurisdiction over the antitrust uh, uh, private enforcement proceedings, uh, I, I think that uh, the first instance could last less, like uh, I don't know, two years. Probably, mm -hmm. I think that it is two years the average duration of the uh, private enforcement litigation before uh, the, the the court of first instance. In the second instance, it's around two years again, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, before the Supreme Court could be one year. Interesting. Yeah, that exclusive uh, jurisdiction, I think that's a very uh, elegant solution uh, because indeed you allow the courts to become quickly uh, more experienced on such cases. And I think it's smart that they choose three courts, not one exclusive court, because of course, if you get a lot of uh, actions uh, on this topic uh, with one court, that experience might uh, be helpful, but of course they will be overwhelmed well, by the yes. amount of cases. So I think that's a very uh, a smart decision uh, of your le legislator to do that. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, well, then uh, maybe looking a little bit at the role of funders. Uh, we did already uh, discuss the topic of adverse party costs. Um, that's an obvious one. Uh, funders uh, can take away that risk for the plaintiffs because they provide no cure no pay, but also no risk. So in some instances, funders can cover that risk. Um, what is your view on, on making use uh, of a funder in your jurisdiction, Felix? Is that something that's being done often? Is it uh, perceived as useful? And in what ways? It's, it's done, um, it's generally done actually in Germany, especially in private enforcement claims, because the costs of a private enforcement claim are higher than other comparable claims. The reason for that is that you usually have an expert opinion from the plaintiff, an expert opinion from the defendant, and one expert opinion from the court. So that can easily double the budget for 
to lawyers. Um, therefore, it only makes sense to litigate by yourself if you have a very um, high claim amount. Otherwise, it makes sense to join a group to make use of the economies of scale. And these group actions are typically funded and managed by funders such mm -hmm. as Demino. Yeah, and of course, besides uh, be doing it by yourself, having a big loss, you also must have the funds available to do it. Um, um, but yeah, so it's, it's mainly a, a way to structure claims collectively and have scales of economy. Uh, uh, and a funder is well-placed to organize that. that that's how I understand it, right? Yes. I think that's the same for the Netherlands. Um, structuring of claims, also management of claims, uh, assisting with obtaining the relevant evidence transaction uh, data that proves that you indeed were a victim uh, to that cartel. Um, I think also access to experts. Uh, you already mentioned that Felix, experts play a big role when it comes to causation and calculation of the losses. Um, so indeed having access to good local experts uh, is key as well. Um, Giacomo, funders, uh, Italy, uh, what is your view on that uh, biggest advantages uh, to work with them? Yes, uh, as you correctly said, probably the uh, most important advantage in working with a litigation funder is that the companies have the possibility to optimize the legal cost. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, they can rely on the expertise of the litigation funder that can pay for a, a highly specialized lawyer, can you know, have uh, managed the, the claim, especially when we are talking about group actions. But I think that there is an another obstacle that the victims of the cartel uh, usually face uh, in this particular uh, litigation mm -hmm. that is the fact that they would have to sue their business partner and so there is uh, the mm -hmm. high risk of jeopardizing the business relationship mm -hmm. with this company and so joining uh, a group action initiated by a litigation funder uh, can help in that sense because the, the individual position of the company will be diluted in uh, the group action and uh, uh, on, the, uh, on the other end, there is also the possibility, as you anticipated before, of, uh, uh, you know, sell the claim. So mm -hmm. through the assignment model, because they all, I think that the, the majority of the litigation funder uh, offer uh, the possibility of, uh, you know, selling the claim. And in this case, the company uh, will have the possibility to monetize immediately, so obtain immediately a compensation without starting the litigation. And um, apart from the companies, I think that the litigation funding would be beneficial also for the lawyers, because again, uh, even them can rely on the uh, expertise or in, uh, of the litigation funder in the management of the group actions. Um, and uh, I would say also for the judges, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if you think about Italy, uh, all the tribunals are overwhelmed. And so for the judge, probably it will be easier to uh, you know, handle one single uh, proceedings instead of 100 proceedings with different individual claims. So I think that uh, at the end of the day, uh, litigation funding will be beneficial for the entire you know, judicial system in Italy. Good. Yeah, that's an interesting angle, of course, uh, because suing your business partner or your supplier, uh, yeah, that can be a bit difficult uh, uh, for plaintiffs, of course, and it yeah, could hold them back in becoming active on a case where they, they, they suffered the loss, obviously. So. That's an interesting angle uh, as well. Um, and I think that, that this uh, uh, may be a key conclusion uh, anyway when overlooking uh, these three jurisdictions. Uh, yes, we have harmonization with the damages directive uh, being implemented. 
but it's very clear that these three jurisdictions have some uh, very interesting aspects, uh, each uh, to itself. Um, some common uh, aspects uh, and, and definitely some prospects of new developments uh, maturing in uh, the coming years. Um, so I think these three jurisdictions, we will see a lot more uh, litigation uh, uh, coming on, on these kind of cases. Um, these were the topics that we wanted to address today. Um, if you as a viewer would have any questions on these topics or other topics relating to uh, these kind of actions, antitrust related uh, uh, follow on actions, please do not hesitate to reach out. Uh, we are happy to discuss uh, any questions you might have. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrence. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrence website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Laws and join the Concurrence group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.